This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. Today, the play that everyone forgets Shakespeare wrote, it's King John. Thus, after greeting, speaks the King of France in my behavior to the majesty, the borrowed majesty of England here. A strange beginning. Commodity, the bias of the world. The world, who of itself is poisoned well, made to run even upon even ground till this advantage, this vile drawing bias, this sway of motion, this commodity, makes it take head from all indifferency, from all direction, purpose, course, intent. Must you with hot irons burn out both mine eyes? Young boy, I must. His hand is warlike John. Francis abode to fortune and King John, that strumpet fortune, that usurping John. All right, as always, because I'm almost sure you haven't read King John, I'm going to give you a short summary. How short? This is King John in one minute. Let's start the timer. Go. All is rotten in the state of England. King John is on the throne, but the French aren't happy about it, mostly because it's the 13th century and the King of England also rules most of France. King John sneers at the French ambassador, who wants John to turn over his crown to John's nephew Arthur. War is declared, just as Philip Falconbridge shows up to contest a dispute with his brother. When it's learned that Philip is the bastard son of John's brother, Richard the Lionheart, also John's predecessor, John makes Falconbridge a knight. Falconbridge follows John to France, where a lot of political chicanery takes place. First, France and England are enemies, then their allies, then their enemies again. All of this puts John and the King of France at odds with John's mother, Eleanor, and Arthur's mother Constance. Eventually the alliances fall apart, England and France go to war, and England wins. John, who has taken Arthur prisoner, orders one of his henchmen to kill Arthur, but the man loses his courage at the decisive moment. Nonetheless, Arthur dies leaping from the battlements, presumably in an effort to escape his prison. His death, along with John's refusable bow down to papal authority, leads to another war with France, and this time John contacts dysentery while leading his troops and dies. Henry III is crowned, and throughout all of this, Falconbridge comments on the action, amuses the audience with his clever quips, and remains John's loyal servant. Of Shakespeare's ten plays about the English monarchy, King John stands out in that it has nothing to do with the War of the Roses. Even Henry VIII can be considered to be part of that series, given that Henry is a descendant of Henry VII, who took the throne from Richard III. But King John predates them all. It's not hard to guess why Shakespeare might have been drawn to write about the War of the Roses, a significant event in English history It ended less than a century before Shakespeare's birth. Shakespeare was baptized only 79 years after the death of Richard III. By the time he was writing plays, he was as far from the War of the Roses as many of us are from World War I. The repercussions of World War I are still being felt today, so it's not hard to imagine Shakespeare feeling the echoes of that 15th century battle for England's throne. All of this explains the appeal of all those kings named Richard and Henry. But what about the king named John, who ended his rule more than 350 years before Shakespeare was born? Why did Shakespeare choose to write about him, and not, say, Henry II? To be sure, there may be some merit to the theory that Shakespeare may have been trotting on the coattails of a very popular play called The Troublesome Reign of King John, a play so popular it had three printings between 1591 and 1622. But given that Shakespeare used his other history plays to explore questions about power, the monarchy, and divine right, questions being grappled with in the world around him, I wonder if he did not see in King John's story a similar relevance that he hoped to explore. 
As with the War of the Roses, the central question in King John is that of legitimacy. King John is on the throne, but the French king believes the crown belongs to John's nephew. Once again, we find Shakespeare has dipped into his country's history to explore the question of divine right. And while King John does not deal with this question in as elegant a manner as, say, Richard II or Henry IV Part One, the play still nonetheless manages to add something to the conversation. The opening act of King John is surely one of the strangest in the canon. In a single scene, King John declares war with France, takes a moment to entertain a battle between the sons of Robert Falconbridge, learns one of those sons is his own bastard nephew, offers to make that man a knight. Falconbridge, mercenary that he is, wastes no time accepting. There then follows a soliloquy, the first in the show, spoken by Philip Falconbridge, who from henceforth will be known as the Bastard. And for a moment, it would seem that the Bastard is going to be our hero. But this is not the case. The Bastard will drift in and out of the play, forever intriguing, but never quite claiming the central role in our tale. Yet Shakespeare was clearly more interested in him than he ever was in King John, who never gets a soliloquy at all. In any case, within the space of a few breaths, Philip the Bastard becomes Philip the Knight. Honor is bestowed on him, and it is left to us to question whether it has been earned. Here, Shakespeare introduces us to his real central theme. Falconbridge may be an unworthy knight, just as John may be an unworthy king. It really depends on one's perspective. Illegitimacy will actually be one of the central themes of the entire play, returning time and again, both in the form of the bastard himself, and with the accusations that fly between Constance, Arthur's mother, and John's mother, Eleanor. Who is it thou dost call yourself, huh, France? Let me make answer. Thy usurping son. Out, insolent! Thy bastard should be king! What? That thou mayst be a queen and check the world? My bed was ever to thy son as true as thine was to thy husband. And this boy, liker in feature to his father, Geoffrey, than thou and John in manners, being as like as rain to water or devil to his damp. <laughs> my boy, a bastard, by my soul, I think his father never was so true begot. It cannot be, and if thou wert his mother... There's a good mother boy that blots thy father. Later, when Constance learns that John has conspired to betray her, she again brings up the same theme. And at thy birth, dear boy, nature and fortune joined to make thee great. But fortune, oh, she is corrupted, changed. And one from thee, she adulterates hourly with thine uncle John, and with her golden hand hath plucked on France to tread down fair respect of sovereignty, and made his majesty the bawd to theirs. Given that illegitimacy is one of the themes of King John, it's unique that Shakespeare decided to create a physical manifestation of that theme in the character of Philip Falconbridge. Falconbridge serves the play mostly as a one-man Greek chorus. It's interesting that Shakespeare chose this structure, because he wasn't all that interested in the Greeks or their drama, and with the exception of Troilus and Cressida, he rarely went back to the Greek well for any of his plots. He wasn't particularly interested in the Aristotelian unities either. The closest he ever gets is in plays like The Tempest and The Comedy of Errors, where he involves the Aristotelian playwriting technique known as Unity of Time. Shakespeare, like many of his countrymen, however, never tried to rewrite Medea or Antigone. Turning Falconbridge into a Greek chorus, then, is intriguing. In Greek drama, of course, the chorus is usually a group of people who are always on stage and who comment on the action. Now, Falconbridge isn't always on stage, but when he is, he usually manages to get in a few remarks about what's happening, either to the audience or to the other characters. 
Often his remarks are quips, making him a parallel for all of Shakespeare's many fools and clowns. But Falconbridge moves beyond those fools and clowns because he is part of the action, and also has very long speeches, something which most of Shakespeare's clowns never get. Mad world. Mad kings. Mad composition. John, to stop Arthur's title in the whole, hath willingly departed with a part. And France, whose armor conscience buckled on, whom zeal and charity brought to the field as God's own soldier, rounded in the ear with that same purpose changer, that sly devil, that broker, that still breaks the pate of faith, that daily break vow, he that wins of all, of kings, of beggars, old men, young men, maids, who having no external thing to lose but the word maid, cheats the poor maid of that, that smooth-faced gentleman, tickling commodity. None of Shakespeare's fools before or after Falconbridge ever get the chance to soliloquize. None of them give lengthy commentaries on the action either. They are usually the conscience of the king, as with Lear's Fool, or a comic relief, as with all those clowns in Twelfth Night. Falconbridge, then, is entirely unique, and it is he that makes King John stand out in the canon. Does not the crown of England prove the king? asks John of the citizens of Angier. A good question, almost as good as the one raised by the citizens themselves, who declare they will be loyal to the king, whoever that king may be. The citizens, representing the vast populace of England and France, aren't interested in the petty bickerings about divine right. They just want it to be decided so they can go about their day. Shakespeare's view of the mob has always been a cynical one, which shouldn't be surprising to anyone who has seen Julius Caesar or Coriolanus. In both those plays, the mob is a fickle beast. It's no different in 13th century France. The citizens of Algiers tell France and England to do battle. They will open their gates to whoever wins the day. Shakespeare's history plays often juxtapose the commoners with the nobility, a style which reaches its apotheosis in the three plays about Henry V. There, Shakespeare leaps from tavern to palace, always giving us fully realized characters who debate, argue, and choose sides in the various wars for the crown. In King John, however, Shakespeare isn't quite ready to give voice to the rabble. As with those other early histories, by which I mean Richard II, Richard III, and the plays about Henry VI, Shakespeare's focus is on the squabbling nobles. However, in King John there's a sense that Shakespeare was starting to see the value in giving the spotlight to people other than those who have titles and crowns. This may be why he devotes so much time to the bastard Falconbridge. Falconbridge may be a knight, but his voice is the most unique one on stage and provides us with a much different viewpoint than that of the kings and dukes. Unlike the citizens, Falconbridge believes himself to have the courage of his convictions, following John and staying loyal to him right to the bitter end. At the end of the play, when the nobles have turned on John, the bastard is still standing at John's side. And you degenerate, you ingrate revolts. Ripping up the womb of your dear mother England, blush for shame. Give me leave to speak. No, I will speak. We will attend to neither. Strike up the drums and let the tongue of war plead for our interest and our being here. Indeed, your drums being beaten shall cry out, and so shall you being beaten. Do but start an echo with the clamor of thy drums, and even at hand a drum is ready braced that shall reverberate all, as loud as thine sound but another, and another shall, as loud as thine rattle the welkin's ear, and mock the deep mouth thunder, for at hand is warlike John. 
But for all those hot words, Philip Falkenbridge doesn't turn out to be any better than the citizens of Angers. When he arrives in Act 1, he is determined to prove that he isn't a bastard so he can claim his father's estate. But when he's given the chance to become known as the bastard son of Richard the Lionheart, he suddenly changes his tune. At the end of the play, the bastard is ready to do sweet revenge on John, but told that the war with France has ended, he swears fidelity to Henry III. Falconbridge is no idealist. He is a man who knows what he must do in order to survive. For all this, Falconbridge, like all fools in Greek choruses, is not the play's hero. Narratively, he is always off to the side. In the parlance of television writing, he is the B-plot. Herein lies the essential problem with King John. It is not a terrible play, but it suffers from one problem that no production can ever overcome. The secondary characters are far more interesting than the hero. King John may be the hero of his own play, but he is never the most interesting person on stage. Actors who complain about the lack of strong female roles in Shakespeare would do good to take a closer look at King John. Margaret is the only standout from the Henry VI plays, and the rest of the plays only offer a collection of minor moments for prostitutes, mothers, and wives. But in King John, we are presented with two women who hold places of power. Eleanor is the mother of the king, while Constance is the mother of the boy who wants to be king. This juxtaposition allows for some good feisty scenes since both women are fighting not just for the advancement of their children, but also for the realization of their own ambitions. Like Margaret, the women are taken to haranguing the men when they are betrayed. Like Margaret, they are struggling to be ambitious in a world that wishes they would leave such things to the men. Neither Constance or Eleanor are involved enough in the narrative to ever be as tragic as Margaret. They both hover on the sidelines, provoke their children, and end up dying offstage. But significantly, they are both matrons, women who have passed their childbearing years. Margaret could use her sex to sway men, as she does in the first two parts of Henry VI, seducing the king and the Duke of Suffolk. Such things are impossible for Eleanor and Constance, who have been stripped of their sexual power and can only use their maternal one. Only by working to promote their sons can the women ever hope to promote themselves. Even so, feminists shouldn't get too excited about the women in King John. The character of Blanche is a good one, but only for a single scene. She's a prize who, once married off, disappears from the narrative, and as for Constance, well, she is one more example of what is in a very unfortunate Shakespearean trope, the ambitious female who goes mad after seeing her ambitions fall apart. It happens to Margaret in Henry VI. It happens to Lady Macbeth. It happens to Ophelia. It even happens to Portia, the wife of Brutus, who, quote, swallows fire, end quote, while Brutus is off losing the war with Mark Antony. Generally speaking, when Shakespeare's women want only to fall in love and marry, they are usually blessed with a happy end. When they want more, they are often given much less happy fates. Constance and Eleanor both die abruptly and offstage, which is another thing Shakespeare does far too often to his lady characters. Again, one only has to look at Portia, Ophelia, and Lady Macbeth to see evidence of this pattern emerge. There's possibly a technical reason for this. The actors playing these characters might have been doubling as other roles, but it happens far too often to be entirely accidental. Portia and Ophelia are secondary characters, but Lady Macbeth deserves more than her unceremonious offstage suicide, and the same can be said for Constance and Eleanor, who emerge as central figures in the first two-thirds of King John, only to die offstage when the play shifts focus in Acts 4 and 5. Acts 4 and 5 of King John shift their focus entirely to a different cast of characters, which is reminiscent of the Jack Cade interlude in Henry VI Part II. There's such an abrupt shift that it's as if Shakespeare chose halfway through the effort to start writing a different play. Another interesting Shakespearean trope that is found in King John is seen in Act 4 when Hubert is ordered to kill Arthur and finds that his knife falters at the moment of decision. 
Fans of fairy tales, of course, will recognize this as something which reappears time and again, most famously in Snow White. In Shakespeare, we see some variation on it in Richard III, Macbeth, A Winter's Tale, Cymbeline, and Hamlet. Often, though, Shakespeare toyed with her expectations. In Richard III, the murderers kill Clarence despite their moral quandaries. In Hamlet, the prince turns the tables on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and leads them to their execution instead. In King John, though, Shakespeare plays it straight, in one of the play's most affecting scenes. Oh, save me, Hubert, save me! My eyes are at him with the fierce looks of this bloody man! Place with the eyes, I say, and bind him here! Alas, what need you be, sir, boys, just rough? I will not struggle, I will stand stone still! For heaven's sake, Hubert, let me not be bound! Drive this man away, and I will sit as quiet as a lamb! Thrust but this man away, and I'll forgive you whatever torment you do put me to! Go stand with him. Let me alone with him! Unfortunately, as with Constance, Eleanor, and Philip Falconbridge, neither Arthur or Hubert are main characters. We haven't been given any reason to really care about them. And so we see the central problem of King John rearing its ugly head again and again. The play would be such a better play if Shakespeare could have been more focused in his construction. There's simply too many characters running around the stage, and none of them are able to claim the spotlight. At the center of all of this, of course, is John himself, a character of whom I've spoken very little, mostly because he strikes me as being something of a cipher. Probably the most interesting thing about John is a fact that has nothing to do with Shakespeare. He's the brother of Richard the Lionheart, and so the model for the wicked Prince John, who will appear in all those stories about Robin Hood. The actual John did engage in some treasonous shenanigans during Richard's reign, but he won the crown legitimately after the Lionheart's death. It's here that Shakespeare picked up the story, and in keeping with his usual obsessions, delivers us the tale of the events surrounding the Baron's Revolt and the war that led to John's death. Now, I've only seen two productions of King John, and in both cases, the actors have played John as capricious and peculiar. He is, if anything, exactly like Richard II at the beginning of Richard II, but Richard spends his play gradually earning our pity, while John never earns it at all. He may be the play's subject, but Shakespeare seemed loath to present him in three dimensions. A certain branch of scholarly thought states that King John was written after Richard II but before Henry IV, which means it would have been written sometime around 1595. The idea brings us to the questionable practice of dating Shakespeare's texts. Although we might know when a play was staged, it doesn't follow that the play was written in the immediate preceding months. Some plays take years to write, others might be abandoned as the author loses faith in the idea. Since Shakespeare took his history from Hollingshed's Chronicles, a text published in 1587, my guess is that he started working on King John not long after. The play's general lack of focus is more reminiscent of his early work than his later ones. Shakespeare was always developing as a writer, and after Richard III, he seemed to develop the understanding that it was better to focus his plays around single individuals. I find it hard to believe that he wrote the play around the same time he wrote The Glorious Richard II. With the exception that both plays are written entirely in verse, I can find few similarities. Both Richard II and its sequel, Henry IV Part I, deal with a similar topic, a king dealing with rebellion, but Richard, Henry IV, and Henry's son, Prince Hal, are all fully developed, while John remains unfocused. Still, all writers are slaves to a variety of influences, and it's true that the weaknesses we find in King John will reappear in later works, Troilus and Cressida, The Merchant of Venice, and Henry VIII, to name but three. So perhaps the scholars are right, and Shakespeare did indeed take a break from brilliance to write King John. If so, then it was short-lived. The next play he gave us was Henry IV Part I, a play which is his undoubted masterpiece. And perhaps the reason that King John is so weak is that even as he was writing it, Shakespeare was already distracted by an imagination that was on fire with the work that was to come. In the end, there are plenty of strong scenes in King John, from the one where Arthur pleads 
for his life to the moment when the newly married Dauphin of France must choose between taking sides with his wife or the Pope. In other plays, like A Midsummer Night's Dream, the individual ingredients are shoddy, but the play still works as a whole. Here, we have the opposite effect. The individual ingredients are not strong enough to salvage King John, and for most audiences, the play will always remain a curiosity, even when it is expertly staged. And now comes the part of the show where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. Most versions of King John are recordings of live performances, though there is a version created for television created by the BBC in 1984. This is a relatively faithful version of the play, with Leonard Rossiter playing the title character. It's not a bad production, and I have a soft spot for it, as it was the first one of King John I ever saw. At the same time, the acting is uneven, and there's an almost cartoonish aspect to the design, reminding one of the way medieval England looked in all those Technicolor epics made by Hollywood in the 1940s. The design scheme is most similar to that of the Errol Flynn picture of The Adventures of Robin Hood, and given John's connections to that tale, it's possible the similarities were entirely intentional. A far sharper production comes to us courtesy of Canada Stratford Shakespeare Festival. Here, the costumes are just as colorful, but as the design is Elizabethan, we don't feel we've stepped into a cartoon. In any case, actor Tom McCamus isn't a bad King John, although he follows the tradition of playing John as more than a little capricious and off-kilter right from the start. Far more interesting is Graham Abbey, who is a magnificent Falconbridge, bringing charisma and charm to the role and serving his function as Greek chorus with great aplomb. He brings so much neat levity to the play, but he also brings force to Falconbridge's many speeches. The production is available on DVD. As always, I'll leave links to everything on the show page. Well, that's it for King John. Next up, a look at the worst play Shakespeare ever wrote. It's The Merchant of Venice. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. If you like the show, subscribe, rate, and review it in the iTunes store. For more information about the things I've discussed, visit the show page at www.joelfishbank.net slash Shakespeare on Bard. That's all one word. And hey, while you're there, check out the other things I do with my time, including information about how to get your hands on my novel, The Thunder of Giants. It's a book about two eight-foot-tall women struggling to survive in a world too small to contain them, and it's available from St. Martin's Press. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. 13 plays down. 25 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it. <laughs>